climbing to the cockpit with pilot and Link Square's Chief Legal Officer, Tim Perilla, as he invites legal leaders aboard to share advice that will help you navigate even the most turbulent times of in-house counsel work. We'll cover a range of topics from data privacy to legal team structure to public company transactions and beyond. You don't want to miss this series. Fasten your seatbelt and prepare for takeoff. You're listening to Cockpit Council. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Cockpit Council. My name's Tim. I'm the Chief Legal Officer at LinkSquares. And today we have Megan Keeney Anderson, the Head of Marketing at Jasper. Welcome. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Excited to have you. So um, we start, uh, it's a pilot-themed podcast. Awesome. So we start every single episode the same way. I uh, have to ask you what your pre-flight ritual is. Not like, like, it's not meant to be like a metaphor. Like, what do you do before you get on an airplane that's like, maybe unique, gets you in the right headspace or whatever it may be? Okay, so I love flying. I love nice. going to the airport. So I am such a nerd about it. I will get to the airport like embarrassingly early. That's awesome. Um, and my my husband actually used to travel a lot for work. So if it's up to him, he gets to the airplane like as it's going, you know, boarding. That's right. Yeah. Um, I want to be there like at least an hour and a half early so I can okay. like hang out in the airport, get some overpriced airport food, like walk around the, the shops. So I get there early. So I'm also not stressed because running for a plane is the worst feeling anywhere. <laughs> um and then it's just like, I also really like flying alone because it's like your headphones and thoughts yeah. and music and no meetings. It's like, I think I am more creative when I'm up in an airplane um, and I've had like the, my best breakthroughs there. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, have you ever been in a small plane? I have not been on a small plane. Um, again, my husband has. He's yeah. been in some like, he was in like a, a close call on a small plane that we, oh, no we told a bunch of stories around where the pilot like actually instructed them on how to put on the parachutes. Oh my gosh. Uh, so that's probably as close as I need to get. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's, that's probably a pretty scary, uh, <laughs> <laughs> pretty scary thing. Are you a pilot? Um, you I am. Pilot? Yeah. So I, uh, I fly, uh, smaller, you know, smaller planes, uh, both single and multi-engine planes. Um, really enjoy it. I've been doing it for a number of years and, uh, it's, it's, just a great time and for me it's a very different way of of doing something it's a different way of thinking different yeah. very different than what i do day in and day out right so then when so, you fly commercial do you like is it not fun for you because you want to be up in the seat or is it you know a different experience uh it's a little bit of a different experience i don't i don't know that i necessarily would want to be in in the front seat of, of of one of those um but uh I, I usually just take the opportunity to sleep yep. or I stare out the window. Like, Fair that's what made me start flying. I was, um, I was actually afraid to fly and I had to start flying more for work. Huh. And so I didn't, um, I didn't like being afraid of, of flying. And so I started to take some lessons to try to get over that. And sort of as soon as that fear went away, uh, it, really just led to this world of excitement and adventure. Yeah. Um, that's incredible. And so I kept up with it. And, uh, and so now, um, you know, now when, when I'm on a commercial airliner, I'm very relaxed and, uh, yeah, but between wanting to get over the fear of flying and wanting to be able to see the incredible views from the front of the plane. Yeah. Um, I just, I just kept going with it and, and never really looked back. So 
it's pretty awesome. I'm, I'm still learning, uh, you know, still going for more certifications and learning how to fly, fly different types of planes. So it's it's a really good time. I love it. I feel like there's a rare trait to like pick your hobbies based on what scares you the most. You know, usually <laughs> people are just like, I'm going to stay over here. Like, this is my realm. <laughs> and you're just like, no, I'll go right to the thing that scares me. It's cool. Yeah. Well, I, I knew I knew I didn't have a choice. Like, I didn't have a choice to stay in the realm and like avoid the fear because it's like, you know, like it's part of your job. Like, yeah. you have to go to that thing at that place. And yeah. so, like, scared or not, you're on the plane or you don't have a job, sort of thing. So, it's very figured, cool. Yeah. So that's the way that's why I approached it. But let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your career path and what brought you to Jasper. Sure. I know uh, you're at HubSpot, but would love to hear you know right from the beginning all the way through. Yeah, so um, if we go way back to the beginning, I actually started my career in the nonprofit space. I was a copywriter for United Way, which is an oh, anti-poverty yeah. organization. And I was there right when like social media was coming out. Um, e-commerce as like a online as a giving channel was coming out. Mm -hmm. And in a nonprofit, you get to wear a lot of hats. Uh, I ended up running the digital strategy there. And I got really fascinated by technology as a um, like a galvanizer um, and, and a way to sort of accelerate action because uh, you can track everything, you can optimize it. And so I took a pivot um, into uh, tech. I went to work for a startup um, called Performable. And then about five months after I got into Performable, it was acquired by HubSpot. Okay. Um, and so I spent a, almost a decade of my career at HubSpot. I really got to see it go through a lot of changes, went from a single product company to multi-product, you know, private to public, Northam to global. And um, I felt like I lived a lot of lives there yeah. um, from a from a marketing standpoint. And so uh, when I left HubSpot, I was VP of marketing, overseeing product marketing. Um, I had run content for a while, Academy, which is like our educational arm. Okay. And then the creative um, organization, brand and creative. And, um, you know, I got it was a real operation, really content forward, sort of got to feel the pain that Jasper addresses now, which is right. just like never ending content demands and needing to sort of execute these very complex campaigns very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and so the pandemic happened. Everybody had yeah. kind of an inflection point in their lives. I decided at that point, I kind of looked around and my team had grown to be like 120 people and I really was missing sort of a smaller company again. Yeah. Um, so decided that that was my off ramp um, yeah. and went to go work for a little, um, another little startup that was completely outside of, I was like, I'm going to get out of MarTech. Like right. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, I don't I never want to see an email tool again. I'm right. So I went to go work for a company called the Wanderlust Group. Okay. Awesome company. I've heard of them. Um, and they do kind of booking for, you know, campgrounds and marinas. So if you're in a boat yeah. and you're sailing up the coast of, you know, New England and you want to pull into Booth Bay Harbor, mm -hmm. you can book a slip through that app. Nice. So still tech, but, um, you know, wilderness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I loved it. They were, you know, operated on a four day work week. They were very like focused on getting people outdoors as a mission. Um, and really the only reason that I decided to leave there and take on this role at Jasper is that AI to me was just this fascinating eruption of a new space. Yes. And I knew that I, I got a taste of it and I was like, this is not another tool. This is like an entire new stage of 
technology, right? Yeah. Over the course of history, there have been these like, I call them expansion events, right? Like mm -hmm. the internet uh, made it easier to start a business and then right. mobile expanded uh, the purchase window and right. cloud made it easier to collaborate. And these are like these technological shifts that have just drastically increased our capacity. It felt like one of those. Right. So that's why I took the job at Jasper and I've been there since uh, September. That's and I've awesome. lived eight lives since September yeah. <laughs> because it's really changed that often. Yeah, I've heard the AI space grows very slowly, right? Oh my God. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Um, but it's, you know, it's not, we always say internally, it's like, it's not boring, you know, right. like it's a plot twist every day. Um, when I started, ChatGPT wasn't a thing, mm -hmm. which is now, you know, got millions and millions and millions of users, AI agents. So the ability to kind of like use AI to execute in addition to sort of execute actions in addition to sort of write mm -hmm. um, and generate content that didn't exist. It's just, it's wild. Google, all their recent changes. Right. So it's been a lot to react to and the, the space has really just been taking shape every single day. Yeah, absolutely. So how uh, how many people are in Euroorg and how many people at, at Jasper generally? So Jasper has got um, just over like 200 people. Okay. Um, so it's funny, it started in, it's a pretty young company. It started in um, 2021, okay. January of 21. Um, and it just like crazy trajectory from the beginning because it was such a sharp pain point I think that a lot of people had yeah and the addressable market was huge everybody writes right. everybody struggles with that challenge of the blank page mm -hmm. so really like meteoric rise in the first couple of years um and so the team grew from you know I think seven to to 200 in yeah. in two years that's awesome yeah and then my org is, um, we're still, we're about like a 15 um, to 18 person marketing team. It's a fun size. I really like that size. Yeah. I, yeah. I was just, um, I was just saying, we've got like, we've got like one person for each discipline. I've got, like, I've got my, you know, customer marketing person and I've got right. my creative guy and it's always, you know, we haven't quite like filled in and they'll tell you we need more people yeah. um, to keep up. But it, it's nice when everybody's got ownership over a domain um, yeah. and they're, yeah, they're sort of leading the strategy. That's awesome. That's awesome. So um, as far as, as far as generative AI and sort of what, what else is it? It's something that we're really excited about. We're keeping an eye on and, um, and really thinking about how, how our customers can best benefit from generative AI. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're in a relatively you know, relatively focused area mm -hmm. and would love to learn a little bit more on like what brought the company to focus on that area. Uh, is it a bunch of marketers that were the founders mm -hmm. and are moving in that direct, like wanted to make sort of that blank page uh, uh, paralysis uh, a little bit easier to manage or how did how did sort of the, the organization come about? Yeah, you're spot on. So it, it it's a marketing it's it's you know a tool built for marketers by marketers. The founders um, have sort of they've they've been founders before, but always sort of in this kind of marketing space, mm -hmm. um, and very much knew that pain. I think with AI, the interesting thing is it's it's almost like electricity in terms of the number of different ways that you can use it, mm -hmm. and that's that's a really powerful thing, but that can also lead to a lot of misuse, right? Sure. Um, and so I think the most important thing is to be focused in terms of this is the problem 
that we're trying to solve with this technology. It's not about right. the technology. I mean, the technology is, it feels magic and it's cool. And so everybody likes to talk about it. But if you don't have the problem that you're trying to solve or the thing you're trying to, you know, responsibly accelerate, um, it's just a gimmick, right? Right. So for us, it was about, you know, we, I think we started with, we were selling to everybody, whether you were a novelist or a marketer or an executive um, or a lawyer, uh, we kind of sold to everybody. And over the last couple of years, we've really narrowed that in to, you know, go-to-market teams like marketing and sales orgs that have these high content demands need, um, frankly, like need security in mm -hmm. the AI that they use because um, we provide that and then need to be able to create on-brand content. Right. Um, that's really where we're most differentiated at this point. That makes sense. Yeah. So what what would be one thing that you would say would surprise people that your organization has to think about that maybe maybe would not be top of mind? It's a great question. Um, I'll give you an example. Yeah. Like when I was at DraftKings, one thing that people don't think about is that we're holding millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars of people's deposits. Mm -hmm. and so you actually have to think of yourself more like a bank first mm. before you do a sports gambling or a fantasy sports company. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And no one thinks about that. They're yeah. like, oh, yeah, it's just a gambling company. And you all sit around and talk about sports all day. It's like, yeah. Eh. <laughs> yeah. I, I think for us, the most, I don't know if it's surprising, but it's the thing that we're always thinking about is we're, the, the technology itself is, so, is really intuitive. Mm -hmm. So we're actually almost telling people to like slow down in their okay. use of it. Yeah. Um, so most, most companies, it's like, yeah, like market the product, use the product yeah. as much as possible. And we're kind of trying to educate our users like, you can do a lot of stuff with this, but let's talk about how you set standards for use within your company, how you use it well. Um, and maybe that means that you only focus on this one use case to begin with, and then you expand out later on. Yeah. So it's it's funny that like we're sometimes the ones tapping the brakes a little bit. Right. Um, I think that's that's interesting. The other thing is we're kind of encouraging people to not log into Jasper okay. and instead use like the extension to yeah. just call up Jasper wherever you're creating online. Right. Um, so like we don't measure things like weekly active users inside the app. Right. But we do measure it, but it's, that's not our KPI. It's touch points. It's more just like, yeah, are yeah. we are we fitting into the workflow of how people operate? That's interesting. Yeah. So obviously you're running marketing at a company that does generative AI for yeah. marketing teams. I imagine you use your own product. Yeah, we yeah. definitely do. Um, especially because, so I use it a lot for product launches. Okay. Um, because the space is innovating so fast that you know, I was at HubSpot, I felt like those launches were really fast, but we had like, you know, two or three months to execute on a launch. At Jasper, we've got a matter of weeks right. at most. And so oftentimes that means like, we just have to focus on what's the core positioning and messaging, and then we leverage AI to help translate that across a bunch of different formats. Um, so we use it there. I personally use it for, um, kind of use it for brainstorming and research in mm -hmm. when I'm writing things. And then there are types of writing that I use it for and types that I don't, right? Uh -huh. So if I'm writing a speech that I'm going to give, I I will use, I won't use AI for that because I, okay. I want it to be, um, I kind of am like excited about that writing and I don't right. need the help there. But if I'm writing an internal memo or uh, emails or, you know, 
summarizing meeting notes. Like I use it all the time for those. Okay. So. Have you found that any of your customers are using it outside of marketing? Yeah, certainly. I mean, we'll, we always start in marketing and then we always find out that like the sales reps have, um, have glommed on because they yeah. use it for their nurturing flows. They like, it's a great tool in email. Um, we have found that customer success teams like to use it um, when they're, again, anywhere we have a lot of communication, mm -hmm. um, a lot of help documentation to write and right. help documentation changes all the time. Yeah. So keeping up with that demand, it's really like the front office that's gotten the most use out of Jasper in particular. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. So when, when you, you're at an organization that has a ton of, a ton of people with obviously outstanding marketing background. Um, are you pretty involved in sort of the directionally, at least the product roadmap? Yeah. So our product team um, is led by a guy named uh, Jeremy Crane, and he's awesome. He's really told his whole team, product and engineers, that like their customer is sitting inside the company. Yeah, your customer is zero. Right, exactly. Yeah. So we have um, a bunch of Slack rooms where they'll ask us for feedback. They'll kind of shadow how we're operating when we have run into, if we're not using the product mm -hmm. um, for any reason, like a new feature, they'll kind of dig into why that is. Yeah. Were we just lazy and didn't learn it? Or is there a barrier <laughs> there? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think like the relationship between marketing and product has been really strong. Um, yeah. And that makes work, to me, that's like a big piece of making work fun too. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's the same thing for for my org here. Yeah. Like running the legal function at a legal tech company, yeah. it's like it's pretty cool to to have that feedback loop and yeah. be able to be able to help articulate the problem. Like that's when I, when I think about my role in working with the product teams here, my team's role in working with the product team here is is really articulating the problem yeah right um and letting that team come up with the right solution for it mm -hmm. right because more often than not like if i tried to solve some of the problems that we present to these people it would not would probably not be the best uh yeah. the best outcome so yeah it, that's that's fun though like providing that visibility and really getting an understanding of of like all parts of the organization because you are the customer yeah it's that's really, really cool yeah. Um, so maybe shifting gears just a little bit. Um, let's talk about working with the legal team. Yeah. And one of the things that that I really love talking to to other folks about, particularly non-lawyers, is what can lawyers do better, or maybe stated a little bit differently. Tell me a little bit about lawyers that you've worked really well with, mm -hmm. and a little bit about lawyers that maybe you didn't work so well with. Yeah. Or legal departments, right? Yeah, so it's funny, the the two times that I've had kind of in-house counsel at companies, I just got really lucky. I okay. like have loved both, it's both at HubSpot and at Jasper, I sort of love our in-house counsel. Um, the times where I've had tough times with, with sort of legal counterparts, it's actually been when they're sort of out of house and they yeah. don't have that relationship, right? Outhouse counsel. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, outhouse. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the formal name? Yeah. <laughs> it's a little tongue in cheek. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I think like the relationship matters a lot. Um, so for example, I think Alex um, uh, Rindell is our legal counsel inside Jasper. And I think the thing that he does really nicely 
is um, he's really fascinated with this space as we are. Mm -hmm. And he does a really nice job being part of the larger conversation going on across the company and educating the company on what he's seeing. And, you know, it's not transactional. It's not like, right. hey, we've got a contract to be reviewed. Can you sign it? And yes, that right. work happens. But in addition to that, he's doing a really nice job talking with the company around like, hey, there was a hearing the other day that has an impact on our work. Like, here's what it means. Here's how I'm thinking about it. What are you guys seeing? How do we then coach our customers on that? Um, and so it really feels like I've got an elective in, you know, in law um, yeah. and I'm learning on the job about how to view these developing issues in, in AI, right? Right. Um, and once you have that, like I think if you've got that kind of relationship where you're learning from each other and it goes both ways, he's asking yeah. us questions about what how important things are to us and not, um, then you guys can tackle anything together. Then it's like, okay, yeah. if if... Alex then tells me tomorrow that I've got to make a change on the website because it's crossing into an area that's, you know, that we're not legally comfortable with. Um, I'm, I have that trust to be like, of course, you know, yeah. um, and it doesn't feel like a hassle and I understand where it's coming from. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for, for the teaching aspect and explanatory aspect yeah. going both ways. Right. So a lot of times, you know, particularly those attorneys that are new to in-house, they come in and maybe are a little bit hesitant to reveal mm -hmm. how much they're, they really don't know. Yeah. Um, practicing law in this capacity is very much a fact-based, uh, fact-based environment. Yeah. And you don't always have a clear answer. Sometimes you do. You're like, don't do that illegal thing. Yeah. All right. Like that's, that's pretty clear, but it's usually Stop not that, that clear. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. It's usually like, well, it could kind of go either way. And so like being being able to have a, a true partner mm -hmm. uh, to to learn the business and learn the perspective of, you know, yeah. what are you trying to do? I think is really, really helpful for for lawyers to for lawyers to to focus on as they, yeah. you know, grow their in-house career. I think that's a really good point. And I also think that like having an opinion and no, and having the right answer are sort of like very different things. And yeah. the way that I love, like I love having conversations, you know, um, with Alex, for example, where he's like, all right, here's what we know. Here's how I think about it at this stage. But, you know, these are the trade-offs to that way of thinking about it and the risks to that way of thinking about it. Right. And I may, you know, and things may evolve and I may not know. And I never hold him accountable to like every, you know, last, decimal point of what he right. lays out. Um, but I do think that uh, just even just a little hair of direction or opinion or really a framing of how to think about it yeah. is better than just saying, you know, I don't have an opinion. These are the, you know, these are the pathways. These are the pathways. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, the company is obviously very forgiving if, you know, if, if we're wrong somewhere and we have to backtrack or change our point of view, like you don't have to be right, but giving people a way to think about things I think is the job. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that it's interesting that you say that because most of the most of the tech executives that that I know that I've talked to on Cockpit Council and elsewhere, um, there's there's a meaningful change that's happened from maybe you know from when I started my career in house, where it's simply not enough 
to just lay pathways in front of people and yeah. and sit there and be like, listen, it's a business decision and be yeah. hands off. Yeah. It's like, well, have an opinion, right? Yeah. Operate with conviction and be a part of the team. It's really hard to actually be a part of the team or view somebody as part of the team if they don't have an opinion, especially when no operating at that executive level. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, so you're just going to sit there and not have an opinion and then no matter which way it goes. You're, you're still knuck toast. Yeah. yeah, exactly. What do you think led to that shift? I think it was, honestly, I think it was executives just getting tired of it. Yeah. Like, what am I paying you for? Yeah. They're like, you just told me maybe. Yeah. And yeah. then I, you know, I asked you a whole bunch of questions and hoping to get some answers. Yeah. And I don't have any. I have no directional clarity. Yeah. You answered the questions that I had. You didn't give me any perspective, though. Yeah. And, you know, from from the lawyer, so from the executive's perspective, like, I need more than that. Yeah. And I think oftentimes what that comes from is people aren't asking the right questions. And so as a lawyer, to sit there and just answer the questions and then that's insightful. Like, yeah. Lay things out according to those answers is not really helpful. Yeah. Right. It's it's about answering like helping to solve the problem that the questions are trying to solve. Yeah. Right. It's like you're asking the wrong question or you're not thinking about this in, in, in the right way to get the legal guidance that you need. Yeah. Right. And so like, I think the only way that you're able to do that is if you have a more intimate understanding of the business itself and what the business objectives actually are. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. I mean, yeah. It's perspectives, not answers. That's exactly right. But just that little bit of perspective does help put you on footing, even if you you may decide you disagree with that perspective, right. but then you're going into that counter point of view with full knowledge of, you know, what you're going against. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I really it shifts the dynamic of the relationship a great deal um, and makes them part of the, you know, part of the conversation, you know, a, a true like expert and informed piece of it. And just, yeah, there's trust in that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I haven't met Kevin. I would love to meet him, but uh, I have met a couple of your attorneys and actually hired one of them uh, who were on the on the HubSpot legal oh, team. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, and it's not surprising to me that you've had a great experience with, uh, with HubSpot those HubSpot legal team was amazing. Yeah. I mean, again, it was like you see the company go through a lot of different stages. I think GDPR happened in yeah. the middle of um, HubSpot's Gosh. growth while I was there. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's really like a partnership. There's a lot of work that has to happen you know, as the world changes and as kind of uh, legal standards get firmed up. And so, yeah, I think the like active relationship there is is key. And I, oh, I always felt better when they were in the room, yeah. you know, rather than the other way around. Right. Because right. I just felt like I knew I trusted them to be forthcoming and honest with me about like where where the lines were, where the what the right not just like the right legal direction, but the right kind of ethical direction was. Right. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, I think they built a, it, it wasn't just like any one person, they built a really strong culture of that. At yeah. Spot. yeah, absolutely. So if you had to, if you had to tell a lawyer the best way to start to build a relationship with marketing executive or any other, any mm -hmm. other executive in the tech space, like, what would be some of your words of wisdom? 
So I think the mistake that a lot of um, lawyers make in, when you're inside counsel is I think that they, I'm going to project here. So yeah. your, your audience can tell me if I'm horribly wrong. <laughs> but I think that they think that their subject matter is boring to people. Okay. And that they are hesitant to kind of like bring it up because it's just oh, it's just legal stuff, you know, like. Yeah. Um, and I think on the contrary, I would let in, you know, the executives that you work with on the stuff that's fascinating you about the work at that moment. Right. Because mm -hmm. if you're able to captivate your peers, the other executives in the room on, um, you know, changes in legal, legal standards, something you're grappling with, something that you think the company is going to need to prepare for, mm -hmm. the more you can kind of open that door and again, like enlighten them and bring them into your thought process, um, the better in terms of that relationship. And then I think everybody's better prepared to make those calls. Yep. Um, for whatever reason, I think sometimes, uh, yeah, there's a wall there where it's just like, I don't want to bother them with like all the legal details because they're, they're like, you know, they're detailed and in the weeds, but right. I would say bother them, you know, um, yeah. talk about it, especially the areas that, you know, you feel, uh, you know, less on steady ground with because you need help formulating that opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I've found that the, the best way to build relationships has been by trying to, trying to let the other, the other executives or the other, the other business people you're dealing with yeah. understand your perspective and getting their perspective too. Yeah. Right. Totally. You know, you think about, you think about most of the things that in-house lawyers are going to deal with, like very few things are cut and dry. Yeah. Right. And so if you can provide additional content, you know, I, I give, I give an example to our sales team on a pretty, pretty regular basis. Like your, your 26 year old account executive is not going to understand why we, we as an organization are not going to accept, uh, restrictions on assignment provisions in mm -hmm. a contract. Yeah. Right. And it, it is relatively nuanced, but to let them know like, Hey, in certain M and a activity, this could cause us to have to go out to all of our customers and effectively yeah. get their permission in order to do a large scale strategic transaction. Yeah. Right. And people like, Oh, that makes sense. Makes perfect That's why sense. It's a big yeah, deal, exactly. Right? And like over time, these little bits of, you know, these little bits of of knowledge transfer mm -hmm. start to, you know, start to turn those people into some of the biggest advocates for the legal team. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I say it to people all the time. The best negotiators that Linksquares has. It's our account executives. Yeah. It's not the lawyers. Yeah. Like they're they're the ones setting the tones and, and and they're like, oh well, this is just business. But like really they're setting the tone for like legal constraints around mm -hmm. the deals that we're doing. Yeah. And it's absolutely incredible it's to see. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and it's it makes our job just way easier. Yeah. Right. It's I really also cool. think there's an opportunity even outside of the scope of your own kind of company and the legal um matters that you encounter like uh, all the time there are you know business legal issues in the news right yeah. a company gets into trouble for x y and z um and i think that that kind of creates a cool opportunity for counsel in-house to say you know in a voluntary way if you got like a water cooler channel or if you do a lunch and learn or something to be like hey for anybody who's curious about what happened with this company over here like i can give you a breakdown of you know, what, what are the various legal components that went into that? Right. Yep. Um, 
and I and it has nothing to do with the day to day business. But again, it's a teaching moment. Yeah. And it it gives your you know everyone from your accountant execs all the way up to your executive team it gives them like, oh yeah, like there's there's a knowledge wealth here that that we are lucky enough to have inside our offices, right? Yeah, exactly. And it also provides a provides it a, a forum where you can talk with a little bit more nuance than perhaps what we see on Twitter or yeah. on the news, right? Yeah. The headlines. Um, and, and you, you can really learn a lot about, uh, you know, I, I find most of the interesting like news, newsworthy articles usually come down to role of government, like at its most mm -hmm. fundamental level, like, is there an overstep like on the political spectrum, yeah, whatever sure. it may be, is there an overstep here, there, or wherever. Um, and then on sort of the business side, like the characterization of of what's happened, yeah. right? Like so and so gets like a lot of people get sued for a lot of things mm -hmm. all the time, and yeah. some of it makes the news and some of it doesn't. And you start to you know you start to think about okay, why like why did this one make the news versus the other? Sometimes it's obvious as a brand. Yeah. Right. Get Meta clicks. got sued for something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter what they get sued for. Yeah. It's just it's probably gonna end up in the news somewhere. Yeah. Right. Um, but like being able to being able to talk, I think particularly with the executive team, like that's something that I try to do with, with mm -hmm. our executive team. And, you know, same thing at, at DK, um, you know, talking about the, the different, the different issues and, and what happens after you get sued. We, we lived it pretty meaningfully at DraftKings mm -hmm. eventually, but yeah. like, um, walking through with the executives, I, I think, helps to give a little bit more comfort that like you're probably not just going to like step outside the line and get shot in the head. Yeah. You know, and that means that when something does happen, they're going to be in a healthier headspace to be able to think clearly about it and be able to work with you and be a partner in that moment, and not overly reactionary. That's um, exactly it. So, yeah, I think all that stuff is worth doing. And I think that's advice for like any any realm or professional, you know, like be a professor within right. your own company as much as you can, whether you're a, you know, a specialist that's sort of mid-level in the team or you're an executive overseeing a whole division. I think people underestimate how interested the rest of the company is yeah. in learning about what you do and how you think. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we touched a little bit on, on generative AI mm -hmm. and we've touched a little bit on legal issues. Obviously, really interesting emerging emerging legal issue space with generative AI. Yeah. Uh, how how is your company thinking about you know some of the legal things that that could come out of yeah. you know the advancement of the technology? Uh, how are you preparing? Any views on it? Yeah, we're we're totally preparing. Um, yeah. It's uh, we're living it to be yeah. honest. And I think the challenge right now with um, generative AI is it's it's such a new and ever-changing space that the the regulation has not caught up yet with where it is or where it's headed. Um, so there's fits and starts and there's like some direction that is starting to take shape and others that just really hasn't been touched. So I think like what we do internally, the, the legal parameters around like where we think regulation will fall in AI is um, around the lens of like, security and data privacy. That's yeah. a one big one. Um, another one is bias and um, misinformation. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, a, a third one is uh, ownership, like IP. Yeah. Um, 
both in terms of can you copyright what you create with AI and are, you know, there are lawsuits about the training data that goes into um, developing language models. Yep. And all of these are like under development, unsettled law. Right. 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 Um, and so how we're handling this, because we also want to give guidance to our customers who have these very real questions about, God, am I going to use an AI tool today and then get sued two years from now for IP violations? Right. Right. Um, and so we are so Alex, our our counsel and I, you know, every time there is a. Um, you know, a hearing or a lawsuit or something in the space. Um, he's consuming that. We're meeting regularly to understand, like, how how is our guidance going to change in light of this? And what are the various ways this could go? So, again, we can do the same thing to our customers and say, look, no one has answers yet. Here's how we think about it, right? right? These are the various ways this could go. We feel like this for your business is most important to pay attention to. Um, and so that's really what we're doing on a continuous basis is is meeting and we kind of put together statements guidance on each one of these mm -hmm. standards for our own business and how we operate and who we partner with based on our best assessment of where things are and then preparedness for if that changes right yep um so right now there's you know um a bunch of stuff around you know how the models are trained is unsettled, mm -hmm. um, but we're kind of prepared for which whichever way that goes, right? right? And what it means to our end customer and who's you know making sure that they're protected and all of that. Yeah. Um, so it, it's it's just interesting. I mean, it's <laughs> you could look at it all and be like, wow, that's a lot of like unsettled. Yeah. You know, unsettledness, and that's kind of scary and intimidating. But going back to your um, to your learning to fly example, you could also look at it the other way and say like, this is, you know, this is kind of a historic moment yeah. where we're figuring out this is incredibly powerful technology and how we as a society want to use it. Right. And it's got weaknesses and, you know, as a tool, it can be used to unlock incredible potential. Yep. can also be used in negative ways. Sure. Just like anything else, just like the internet. Yeah. So we're trying to learn from those, from history, and predict the future while we're building the thing. Yeah. Uh, and that's interesting, you know? Absolutely it is. Are you uh, are you involved in any like like AI uh, advocacy groups? Like, I don't, I don't know yeah. if there's like an industry consortium where people are, are trying to influence any potential regulation, trying to steer it in a direction, any industry standards groups that, that you all are trying to form. Yeah. Anything interesting like that coming out? You know, informally, like we're all, yeah. you know, we've got you talk really. We talk. We got yeah. really strong partnerships with all the models. With you know, I'm, I'm going to name drop a bunch of things yeah. right now, but like OpenAI and yeah. Anthropic and Google, and um, we're constantly talking with them. Yeah, um, and seeing how they're evolving, kind of their standards and operating, and making sure that that fits well with us. Yeah. We're also talking a lot with. Um, you know, there are really good organizations uh, around, you know, fighting the inherent bias that's in AI. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're talking with a lot of the kind of leaders of those organizations to try to figure out, can we get to a point of explainable AI or can we reduce bias that's found in AI? Right. Um, but it's, uh, we're not kind of formally, we're still in like the information gathering stage. Yeah. 
Um, we're not, we Jasper are not formally like lobbying or right. anything like that. We're very much like scholars of, okay, this space is taking shape. We're going to act responsibly as it takes shape. We're going to make some choices internally based on our own ethics of what, right. what is right for this product. So for example, um, you know, we're, we're filtering out certain queries. So you can't use Jasper for, you know, uh, Certain like harmful, yeah, yeah, to help you like like spread misinformation or uh, create political propaganda. Like those are all against our terms of use, and you get kicked off the platform for that. Okay. Um, So we've kind of set our own standards internally. We're Mm -hmm. checking those standards against the standards of our partners. Right. And then we're listening to customers, uh, to you know, organizations that are uh, trying to counter the some of the you know very clear blaring weak spots of AI too. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting, interesting aspect. I know and you know, different, but fantasy sports had a lot of regulatory ambiguity yeah. uh, in the minds of many, um, you know, early on as DraftKings and FanDuel were kind of um, really coming onto the scene. And that was, you know, I, th- I think one of the most re- rewarding things about uh, being a part of, of that journey was working with FanDuel Mm-hmm. And while we com- while we were competitors and competed fiercely in the marketplace, that was one area where we didn't. Yeah. We we recognized that creating a marketplace where we could compete fiercely was going to benefit not only us but any other any other folks who wanted to enter that marketplace. Yeah. And um, and it was it was a ton of fun to to get to know and and work with with a lot of people throughout the industry and have a hand in in really shaping what you know, what is a new area of law? So yeah. it's, uh, I'm, I'm jealous. I wish I were a part of what you all are doing and, and trying to, trying to make that happen. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's really rich with, you know, different angles and different perspectives. And, you know, I think it's actually best to have a point of view that is, you know, has shape, but is evolving. Right. And right. is open to, as things change, I think the other bit unique challenge you might have experienced this in regulation at, at um, you know, with FanDuel and everything, is um, different countries, right? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, different governments are going to take regulation of AI differently. Yes. Uh, Italy shut off ChatGPT for a few months because mm-hmm. they weren't comfortable with it. Um, you know, uh, the UK is, I think, moving faster than um, the US is right now in terms of kind of its the steps it's taking for assessing. Right. Um, so that adds another layer of complexity. Um, yeah. Now you you've got a, users from around the world. You have a patch where we dealt with it mostly on a state by state basis. Right. Right. Um, and definitely internationally. But yeah. But yeah. Like, then you get this patchwork and, you know, you fear that it becomes a race to the bottom, uh, mm-hmm. which just is not. Yeah. Fun yeah. Uh, to deal with. But there's, so. you know, there's a reason for regulation. Like there's a reason like, you know, all of this is about protecting people from harm. Yeah, right. Consumer and protection. In consumer yeah. protection. And so yeah. it's kind of like that's the balance. Right. Like I think we have to, you know, keep in mind both like it's tough to figure out. OK, a lot of times this can amount to keeping track of a lot of different things and jumping through some hoops and like, you know, things that feel like stymieing innovation. Yeah. But, and you forget that like, this is for a purpose, right? Right. And it's, it's when there's sort of a shared understanding and, and vision for building, you know, 
responsible product that right. it, that betters people's lives um, and mitigates harm, and that these are all steps to do that. There's a lot of different ways to do that. Like that's that's when it can kind of kind of come together and feel like a partnership. Yeah, exactly. And and having that having that at the forefront of any sort of uh, any regulatory change or regulatory yeah. uh, you know promulgation depending on on yeah. what for or even legis- from a legislative perspective it, i think is really important um because you're right you're you're in you're in a business to put out something that is supposed to make people's lives better yeah right and in a, in a way that's not detrimental to others, right? It's not a zero, it, like it shouldn't, innovation should not be a zero sum game. Correct. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you, when you think about, when you think about any advocacy side or even just the way that, the way that you do thought leadership and, you know, in the AI space in connection with your role, like that's, that's a, I have to imagine that's a big part of, of how you're thinking about things. Yeah, and it simplifies. We used to at HubSpot have, um, anytime we had crisis response or kind of crisis comms um, that came about, we always had this like guiding principle. It was literally in the crisis, like you pull out the manual, like alarm bells would go off, there's a crisis. You pull out the like, what do we do in event of a a fire kind of manual book. And like right at the top, it was like, this is our guiding principle. And every, every decision point, and it was always about like, you know, the customer and and you know when in doubt if it's customer versus you know like internal or employee happiness like it's like, like you kind of create a hierarchy there right mm-hmm. and um that it, it seemed like a simple and almost trite thing to be like to have like a vision statement there but the number of times that you know we would bring it back up in the heat of a decision where like you have to take some financial harm uh, in order to do the right thing for, you know, customers, like it helped to have that, that statement, you know, yeah. it helped to have that touch point because everybody's, you know, within a company, you're all good people. You're all trying to do the right thing. But again, in the heat of the moment, you just, it, it can get lost. And it's important yeah. to have that as part of your sort of response and operating model. Right. Yeah. So absolutely. Those, those types of guiding principles are important to, to let you, let you focus in on what sort of the long term it keeps you in the long term yeah right completely. like like temporary financial harm for the organization yeah. is much better to endure than long term harm to those that you're trying to you're trying to serve yeah and ultimately your your brand your company your legacy it's you know yeah that is the right it always is those long term versus short term trade offs yeah um and as and you like you need the reminder Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I think I think we've got at least a couple of questions coming out. Alyssa. Yeah, we do. Um, uh, all right. So there's one topic in here that we talk about a lot, which is building your own personal brand. We have a couple questions on that. One is, as a marketer, what advice do you have on personal branding and how have you created your own personal brand? Yeah, um, it's such a funny topic. It's, it's like interesting to think about yourself as a personal brand, but it does make a difference in terms of like, you know, recruiting and, um, and developing relationships with customers. If you can be out there and be creating and be sharing your point of view, like we were saying before, you know, trust starts with sharing a little bit of yourself and, uh, whether that's your legal perspective or, um, you know, something else that you're going through in your role. So I think the advice that I have is really like, 
don't make it about I need to post to prop up my personal brand. Make it about like find the thing that you're really genuinely fascinated about and write about that almost as if you're writing for yourself. Okay. Right. And then the audience is going to come. Right. So um, I think a lot of times people are like, oh, I, you know, I actually see people using AI to like write a bunch of LinkedIn posts on generic topics because they feel like they have to, it's like volume of, of content they have to post every day on LinkedIn to right. be a thought leader or whatever. Um, and I just think that's such a backwards way to do it because your genuine interest in something is what's infectious and it's what's going to pull people into you. Um, and so find that and then don't be afraid to post on it, um, even if it feels niche, because people will come, you'll find the ones that are going to connect with you on that. Great answer. Um, okay, another one. Let's see. Oh, so this could be for both of you as customer zero. What are your favorite features of your product or something that you informed that you get pride about every time you see someone using? I really like um so my I like the it's a simple thing, but the like browser extension that we have inside Jasper, which allows you to just like Jasper just kind of follows you around the internet, which is kind of nice. <laughs> So if I'm, you know, on Twitter or in my email or in my CMS and I get stuck, I can just do the little like control J and it pulls up the purple cursor and it writes the next line for me. And I think that that uh, there's a technologist named Clay Shirky who had the line um, that technology doesn't get really interesting until it becomes almost invisible. Right. It's so much a part of the fabric of your life that it's just there for you, right? right? And to me, that extension is just, that's the invisible part of Jasper. Um, and I, I like that it just soaks into people's lives when they need it most in the background. That's awesome. On, on my end, um, it's, it's very tactical, but it's all something that's a meaningful pain, like meaningful pain. Um, it's the uh, document compare. Uh, that we have in our pre-signature tool yeah. where you can select one particular document and compare it to any number in your history of documents for the iterations of the contract. Oh, nice. So um, one, thing, one thing that I talk a lot about with people is that it's a best practice to, to what we call run your own red lines, mm -hmm. where if I send you my revisions to a contract, and you send me your revisions back to my revisions. Yeah. Usually you're doing this in Microsoft changes track word, uh, Microsoft Word track changes, right? Mm -hmm. um, best practice is for me to open up the version I sent you and open up the version you sent me, accept all the changes in both, and then run my own red line. Nice. Right? So yeah. that because you can accept changes in Microsoft Word. So like if you think for the in-house lawyers out here listening, yeah. like a lot of you probably trust Microsoft Word and you probably cringe if you worked at a law firm every time you do it, but you do it because you kind of, because it's easier to do it. Mm -hmm. I, and believe me, I won't, I won't tell on people who are doing that, but a lot more people will do that than you think in-house. Yeah approximately zero people in law firms do that because mm. it's a part of the process that law firms, you have to run your own red lines. And oftentimes they'll even send you like a PDF 
like if you're working with a law firm on a contract negotiation, yeah. they'll send you the PDF. Anyway, in our product, we built like three clicks does the compare for. Oh, that's nice. And so it's just like super, super easy as opposed to like saving documents, finding documents, doing the compare yeah. of the documents, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and so that is my favorite feature because it enforces a best practice and it makes it two, three clicks easy. Yeah. And it like over time saves you a lot of time. Yeah. So Alyssa, what about you? What's your favorite feature of Jasper? Of Jasper? Yeah. I think I said this, it's kind of like your answer too, but I love how Jasper is just in my inbox. Mm -hmm. um, I use it in emails all the time. And then the other thing is I love asking it questions to ask other people. Yeah. So like, what, what do I need to know about data privacy regulations? And it'll write four questions that I need to know the answer to. Yeah. That's the, awesome. The summary stuff is kind of cool too, where it's like you, so I, I, I'm trying, I'm, I'm reading a lot more on like um, ethics and AI and this concept of like explainable AI, um, but they're often in these like very big academic papers um, and I'm trying to squeeze it in between two meetings <laughs> for <Yeah>. my own <laughs> self-edification. And so like the ability to summarize that and get, you know, key points out of it is really helpful too. Yeah, the make it shorter button. Yeah, <laughs> it's always good. Lawyers need those. Yeah, a <laughs> little different. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool, we can do one more. I guess we'll do, uh, how do you see the future of work? Sorry, how do you see the future of work changing with teams across the organization leveraging AI powered technology? Mm -hmm. So um, I think that we have to just kind of, it's a given that within any company right now, it doesn't matter what industry, how f tightly regulated that industry is or not, there are going to be people who are using AI individually within your company. Maybe it's ChatGPT personally or a tool that they bought on their own credit card or what have you. And so I think like the, the advice that I would give is, you know, as a company, you really need to sort of get together, set some standards, both in terms of like the technology that you've cleared for use from a security standpoint, the best practices that you want to share across the company around like how you use AI and how you don't use AI, literacy about, you know, it's amazing because it's so magic. People like to, aren't asking how it works. They like kind of don't care. <laughs> right. uh, it's like the microwave where you're just like something's happening in there and, you know, right. but at the end I have a hot meal. Uh, <laughs> so I think there's like investing in some AI literacy about how it functions. Those are the three steps that I would take for businesses um, to, it's not just about safeguarding the business, but it's also about like getting the most value out of the AI that you yeah. use. Um, so, you know, for example, there was a Samsung incident where people were using um, like the free version of ChatGPT and putting in a bunch of intellectual property into that. Mm -hmm. And it and then, you know, it goes and trains the model and other people can get access to it because there's not like a, a you know, safeguard there. Right. Um, uh, OpenAI has since produced like products that have security. Jasper's got security and like thick walls in, inside of it. But like, you know, you can see how that would happen, right? Oh, it's yeah. a new tool that people just want to use and they don't get it. Yeah. Um, they're not thinking about it. They're not thinking about it. They're thinking yeah. about how to get through the stack of work in front of them faster. Yeah. It's like, why Why would you? Yeah. Like, this is a cool thing. Yeah. I to see how it works. So yeah. I think like, yeah. yeah, it's just about pulling together some standards, even if they're baseline for your company and having that conversation. Um, I was just talking with the CMO of VMware 
the other day and they've done a really nice job of doing this. They already have like a standards document that they've shared across the company. They've got an AI council internally that's really kind of testing out new use cases. They've got recommendations. Um, so yeah, dive in. I mean, it's, but provide some guidance to your, to your team. And I think that the legal team can actually play a, a good role in this too. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, uh, hopefully a fast roll. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Try not to slow you all down too much. No, so. definitely. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks so much for being here. This is an awesome conversation. Great so to fun. great to spend a little bit of time. And uh, for those of you who tuned in, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And give us a like, give us a follow on all the socials, and we will see you next time. Thanks. Thanks so much.